Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 45th episode, I'll be talking to Katie Malloy, film critic and co-host of the Silver Screen Queens podcast, about Gene Kelly musicals and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Along the way, we'll discuss the basic level of failure of Suicide Squad, the chronological adventures of Christian Slater, Time Lord, and the chrome-plated cannibalistic monomyth that is Star Wars. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. Editor's note. This was a particularly rough episode to record. I was recording Katie on Skype, and for some reason one of the cables of my microphone was playing up, so you'll hear the occasional crackling fuzz and the occasional cut that's sharper than normal. Sorry about that. We join this conversation already in progress. makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake. <laughs> okay, so my name is Katie Malloy. I am a podcaster. I'm one of the Silver Screen Queens. So we have the Silver Screen Queens podcast, which is a weekly film podcast. We watch a movie every week and then we review it. And I am a teacher and I am also a writer. I have written movie reviews, but I've also written a book that I'm hoping to get published. So tell me about this book. I mean, what, what you can say. I mean, I'm not asking you to reveal everything and, you know, tip your hand. Well, it's called Super City, and it's about a girl who lives in a city that's protected by superheroes who she hates. <laughs> okay. It's a young adult book, and I'm not going to tell you any more than that at the moment, because I'm only just really in the early stages on the publishing journey. I'm just picturing, and again, this, I could be completely off base, because I know literally nothing apart from that sentence you just said, but I'm picturing like a superhero equivalent of the Scotty Young I Hate Fairyland comics. Which is just about a little girl. I don't girl. know those, I'm sorry. It's basically a little girl who's very cute, but also just enjoys like going into the cutesy fairyland and just killing everyone. It's, oh, wow. And it's drawing no. this like hyper cartoony Scotty Young style. And so everything is adorable, but also, oh my God, like there are chainsaws involved. No, there's no, that she doesn't kill people. <laughs> okay, well, that that's probably for the best, considering, considering you want to, you know, have a number of books, not just one. <laughs> Yeah, it's not quite like that. But no, they're more an inconvenience to her than something she wants to eradicate. Gotcha. Hang on. I'm actually going to drop one of the covers for I Hate Fairyland into the chat purely because I love this series so much. Okay. I don't do comics. And I know that's like... No, that's fine. I mean... Sounds snobby and elitist of me. But it's because I have a terrible disconnect. This is a big thing that might actually come up again. I don't have a very good visual imagination. Okay. It's one of the reasons that I'm so drawn to movies and TV shows is that I can see what's happening. And I was a big reader when I was a kid, but I don't make good pictures in my head of what I'm reading about, which caused a lot of problems because I love sci-fi and fantasy and things, but I couldn't figure out what things look like. You should have seen me trying to figure out what a hippogriff looked like when I was reading Harry <laughs> Potter and I'm trying to stick a bird's head on like an, a horse I'm like it doesn't fit I don't understand how this works because <laughs> I just don't have that kind of the visual imagination to do it and when I'm reading comic what I do is I read all the words and then I go back and I look at the pictures and it doesn't work because you're supposed to kind of look at the words and the pictures at the same time and it's because of this like I lack that kind of connection between the visuals and the words so like for movies and tv shows I'm fine but when it's a comic, I just don't put them together very well. And so I disconnect from it and I have terrible trouble remembering anything that happens. So, I mean, I know I've read the first three books of Saga. And if you ask me what Saga's about, I'm like, somebody was pregnant. There was like a spider lady with boobs. And then there were TV head people. Yes. And That's what I've got. Lots of blood and lots of sex. And people die a lot. <laughs> And if you ask me what happened in a movie that I saw 10 years ago, I can tell you everything. <laughs> if you want to have a look in the chat, I've just dropped in two images. I'm looking. 
<laughs> that style looks very familiar, actually. It looks like... Oh, you know who she looks like? What? From Animaniacs? Elmira? Yeah, that's who that reminds me of. Yeah, a little bit. That's the one. Because Scotty Young also does all the, like, Little Avengers books and stuff. And so he's okay. used to drawing, like, super cutesy versions of superheroes. Like, you know, mm. big-headed, tiny-bodied, like, little kid superheroes. And this, I think, is his palate cleanser. Wow. Well, that is intense. <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit like that. Did I tell you that I work with kids? Uh, you did. You said you were a teacher, yes. Yeah, I work with, um, well, I'm actually in before and after school care at the moment. I work with kindy tier six kids. But I've worked with every age group from like three-year-olds up to college students. So these kinds of things are a little bit, uh, all I think of when I look at that is like, oh, I hope they don't get their hands on that. <laughs> That's imitative. Well, I know that basically year threes and up would love it. But a bit much yeah. it's cute though i like it yeah and i've actually been listening to your podcast silver screen queens for quite a while all the way back to oh, i cool. think it was your league of their own episode was the first one i listened to wow i forgot we reviewed that for the podcast <laughs> well for those who haven't heard it did you want to kind of give a an elevator pitch for silver screen queens sure um so silver screen queens is a geeky feminist podcast melissa and i my co-host who is one of my best friends we met at film school, started talking about movies, and then we moved in together a few years ago. We decided that we would turn that into a podcast. So basically what we do is we try and see a new movie every week. Sometimes we see older ones, like The League of Their Own. And then we sit down. We basically go almost every week straight from the movie into the podcast. We sit down and we talk about how we felt it, look at it from a feminist angle, look at it from a, you know, a filmmaking angle and decide how we felt about it as a whole. And then we give it a little rating at the end of the podcast and let people know if they should watch it. <laughs> but the most of the time, I think we do a lot of spoilers. So it's really good to watch the movie and then listen to our podcast and see if you agree with us and see if you disagree with us. It's pretty fun. Sometimes we also do, we do, we'll do all the Netflix Marvel shows and we'll have a guest on. That's really great. And we do, um, we did the Gilmore Girls Netflix show as well. So occasionally we'll do a full Netflix season when they come out. And yeah, if any of that sounds even remotely up your alley, I would definitely recommend checking it out. The reviews for the films are given with a lot of energy, which I love. I hate getting onto a podcast and hearing someone say, yes, I feel that when... In Thor 2, when Frigga died, I felt very emotional about it. Instead, <laughs> I like that you get... I like that you pulled that particular oh, thing. I remember that, that I, one. Cause yeah, because like... I, I think that Thor 2 was the one where I spent almost the entire time ranting about how Frigga was fridged. It was literally the first words out of your mouth. It was, so what did you think of the film? <laughs> they fridged Frigga! <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wasn't very happy about that. I don't know if you could tell. <sighs> I just, I don't like fridgings, man. It's one of my least favorite tropes. Passionate opinions are not something we're short on. Did you happen to listen to the Suicide Squad episode? No, I haven't yet. I've got a few backed up. If anybody does want to listen to the podcast, I recommend listening to the Suicide Squad episode if you really like passionate opinions on things. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that y'all didn't like Suicide Squad. Would that be accurate? That would be accurate. However, my dislike of Suicide Squad outstrips Melissa's by some way and probably most other people on the planet's by some way. I, I really hated it. I actually felt like I was being tortured for the last sort of 20 minutes of that movie. <laughs> I had created a drinking game for myself. I just had a bottle of water, but every time they said something that I thought was offensive or they used a musical cue instead of characterization, <laughs> I would drink. And I finished my bottle of water with 20 minutes to go and I had to pee so badly. And I was like, no, I have to sit here and need to pee for the rest of this movie. This is my punishment for paying for a ticket for this god-awful piece of crap. So I didn't like Suicide Squad. <laughs> I saw Suicide Squad with my girlfriend's parents. Oh, no. Because her dad is like a huge otaku and comics nut. And so he wants to see every comic book movie that comes out. And mm -hmm. I get to go along because it's his way of convincing his wife to go with him is to say, oh, we'll invite Lucas and Kimiko along. We'll all go yeah. and see it. And we went to see Suicide Squad and it finished. And Kimiko and I sort of looked at each other and before we could say anything, he leaned out, he leaned out and he's like, that was great. <laughs> we both kind of just went, huh. No. Yeah. Huh. That's the sort of thing where like peacekeeper type people would go, oh yeah. And I would be like, what are you crazy? <laughs> 
I'm not good at keeping my opinions about things to myself. But luckily, they're the kind of parents where they didn't stick around because they had to go and make the meter on their car, yep. which they had timed to like 10 minutes after the movie was done. <laughs> okay. So not to add like a 20 cent piece too much. And then just like, well, we got to go. See you guys later. <laughs> and off they went. And it's so sort of like, okay, great. So we agreed that, that was that was crap, right? Yeah, yeah, it was crap. It's, okay, it. it's really bad. Like, it, it's bad on a fundamental filmmaking level. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a second act. It goes from the first act to the third act, which is then the rest of the movie. There's no build. There's no, like I said, they put in musical stings instead of characterization. Like just on a a really basic filmmaking level, it fails. Like forget about all the grossness and the bad acting and the the everything else. It's the fundamental breakdown of how movies work. You've mentioned before you're not a, a comics person, but I got really angry because of all the mischaracterizations. Mm. They took Amanda Waller, who is one of the most mm. interesting characters in the DCU, be it the animated series Justice League, be it the comics, anything. She is a really awesome character and interesting and layered and deep. And the actress is trying. She's trying real hard, but she's given the wrong material. Well, it's Viola Davis, so yeah, yeah. she would be. I, I realized I was going to say Viola Davis. I'm like, oh, crap, I can't remember if it was. I have not thought about that movie since I've seen it. At least they didn't make Amanda Waller super skinny like they did on Arrow. Or like they did in the Black Canary comic book where in some panels she's so light-skinned as to look white. And I got really mad. Oh, yeah, that happens a lot. But I know sort of, I know bits and pieces about comics, but mostly because I read about them. I, I will occasionally go down like Wikipedia rabbit holes of like learning about things. And often that'll be comics, which I find a lot easier than reading the comics. Sure, sure. Like I said, I don't want to sound like I'm elitist or against comics in any way. I think mm. they're great. It's just that I can't functionally work with them. Hey, I respect opera. I'm not going to pay for a ticket to go and watch one. True. I'm sure it's very difficult to do that. I'm sure it takes a lot of effort. (laughs) I'm not going to go see it. I'm sorry. No, I think opera is one of the few forms of musical theater that I'm not a huge fan of. (laughs) I am very into musical theater, though. Good. As all right-thinking people should be. (laughs) That comes up, I think, occasionally on the podcast as well, which actually stems from my childhood like obsession with musicals and all the Gene Kelly musicals and Fred Astaire musicals that my parents used to tape off the television that I would then obsess over and like as a you know little three-year-old white girl living in Japan and dance down the street to singing in the rain with my umbrella open when it was sunny well I was gonna say speaking of segues (laughs) speaking of segues whereabouts did you grow up I grew up in Japan and Korea. My dad is a diplomat and I first moved to Yokohama in Japan when I was three months old and lived there, lived in Yokohama for three years, then Tokyo for two or the other way around. I can't remember now. A couple years back here in Australia and then went over to Korea for three years, a few more years back in Australia and then over to Japan again for high school. So my upbringing was a bit all over the place. By the time I was 18, I realized I'd spent more years in other countries than my own and very much like an, an international diplobrat <laughs> an international kid i was sort of thinking about it a bit today and i think like part of the reason why i got so into movies and stuff is because they kind of provide this connective tissue that you move a lot but the movies are always there that kind of idea i think is part of why I clung to them so much. And then as I got older, it became a really good way of like connecting with people across cultures. Like, okay, we may have grown up in different places, but everybody's seen Star Wars, right? Yeah, it becomes that kind of easy shorthand for getting this across. Yeah. Yeah, and it's actually something that I've talked about on this very podcast, that while I was not moving to Japan or Korea, I was bouncing all over Canada uh, for my entire childhood. Like you said, movies, video games, media is a way of finding rapport. And not in the, hey, how's your day going on a phone call kind of rapport, but actual sameness, similarity, connection. And then, you know, when I got into high school, it was just a sort of the internet was getting big, not to age myself too much. So I discovered the internet when I was here in Australia, but it didn't really come into play for my life until I moved to Japan. And I went on the original Buffy Bronze, the posting board. I don't know if you remember it. I do. Yeah, you do. So I was an original bronzer at 13. I was on the bronze or 14. I'm bad with numbers, sorry. I would connect with people on the internet about things that I liked. And that became kind of a way of like finding a culture, I guess, or a friends group or something that didn't rely on like, because I felt so different a lot of the time from everybody around me. But hey, all of these people liked Buffy. And the Buffy posting board was brilliant. Joss and all the actors used to go on there and they had posting board parties and all sorts of things, I remember. 
Not to sound like a snob, but I was a member of a Buffy the Vampire Slayer message board called The Watcher's Diary, which was an unofficial one. And the bronze closed down once the show ended. And yep. <laughs> which then led to an influx of people from the bronze. And a lot of the old stalwarts would complain about it and would say, <laughs> like, look at all these terrible people. Like, the equivalent of someone on Twitter, like, being angry about shit posters. And being like, oh, we've got all these crappy people coming in. God, we're so enlightened and articulate. <laughs> when the bronze shut down, I went over to a couple of the different posting boards around the place. It wasn't quite the same. I tried a couple of the different other ones, and I'm sure that I was probably one of the annoying people invading other people's spaces at the end of that. It was a shame that it shut down. I'm sure, I'm sure you were not. No, I'm sure you were one of the good ones seem cool <laughs> i'm sure it was really kind of something else actually the other show that had a really really good posting board was lost oh really yeah it was great and actually i'm still in contact with one of the writers from lost javier grigio mark's watch who created a show called the middleman as well which is a show i really love a lot of the people that i met on both of those the bronze and the fuselage are people that i'm still in contact with and they were both really really good posting boards lost i know kind of lost its way i see what you did there yeah, I know, right? It was subtle, but I think you can pick it up. <laughs> those early days were really something special. Yeah, totally. It was actually those early days that got me onto it because, as mentioned previously on the show, I used to go to the Civic Video on King Street in Newtown and would rent the discs of the DVD so that I would bring them home. My cousin lives in Newtown. Oh, yeah, nice. Non sequitur, sorry. DVD. That's okay. I was renting the DVDs and I would watch three episodes per night and then go back and get the next one. And it was yeah. when I transitioned from binging that show like that to watching it week to week in the second season, then it started to fall apart for me. I don't know. There's a lot of things I really like about Lost right through it. I think it did kind of get lost in its own mythology. I did it again. You did it again. <laughs> yeah. I think it did kind of meander a bit with its own mythology and get bogged down in that. But in terms of like sort of multiculturalism, it was really unlike a lot of other shows on television. To have like a Muslim male main character was something that still there's not a lot of shows that do that, you know, and have him be sympathetic and likable and one of the heroes. And then you've got, you know, Jin and Sun and, and various other kind of interesting characters and also people who don't look like other people that you've got on TV. It introduced us to Jorge Garcia, who I love. So, yeah, I think some things about Lost that, and God, it was such a gorgeous show. Oh, it was beautifully shot. Phenomenally gorgeous. So there were things that I liked, you know, right through it. There were definitely a lot of problems with it. But I think on a rewatch, one of the things that struck me was because it's so into, into uh, like shocks and surprises, it kind of does a lot of character assassination things. There's one character that I like the whole way through when I rewatch it, and that's Juliet. And she doesn't come into like season three. Yeah, plus plus she starts evil and has to and has to like win you over. But she's a good evil at the beginning. She's like a fun evil, you know. She's like somebody that you're interested in and like. That's some good evil. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> By the end of it, you know. She's just likable, but she's, I can't remember the name of the woman who plays her, but she's just brilliant. I, I think her official name is That Blonde Lady. Yeah, That, that Blonde Lady, you know, with the curly hair, Juliet. <laughs> Elizabeth something, maybe? I no, I think that's the other one. I'm just typing Juliet from Lost into Google and Google for Elizabeth Mitchell. That's right, Elizabeth something. I'm good with actor names generally. She's great. I liked her all the way through and Hurley most of the way through. And that was about it. Jack, I hated. God, Jack and Ross Geller from Friends are like my two least favorite characters on television in all of history. Also, Matthew Fox got terrifying shortly after Lost. Oh, Body. he's a horrible person. Yeah, yeah. That show had some issues, but that's something I watched as a kid, and it's probably not relevant to this podcast. <laughs> all right, well, let's let's bring it back on to your childhood. So what sort of kid were you traveling around Japan and Korea and Australia? What sort of kid was I? Loud. I was loud. I liked attention. I was, much like I am now, very intense about things. I was pretty good at entertaining myself. I was an only child till I was seven. And then my surprise little sister came along. I was very good at sort of, you'd sit me down with like a puzzle or some toys or something, and I entertained myself pretty well. I was really into making stories, making characters. My dolls all had names and all had different personalities. And I had to collect all the different, like, you know how Barbie would have like, There'd be a little, like, the main sort of white blonde Barbie, but then she would have all of her friends who would be, there'd be, like, a black Barbie and an Asian Barbie and all that sort of thing. To reflect my kind of upbringing and who I was around, I was like, no, I don't want the blonde one. <laughs> I want all the other ones. I don't want the, and it was so hard to find all the other ones. You know, there's a million blonde Barbies and only one of each of the others. But I had to have all of them. 
<laughs> and then I give each one a different name and a different personality and, and all these other things, you know, then create these huge stories around what they were doing. And that was something I really liked doing. I was a lot to handle, I think. I really liked to talk and have people listen to me <laughs> and be on all the time and be entertained all the time and, and want to be doing things. I always found it really hard to make new friends and fit in. And I think it's partly because I just don't have that ability to just like adjust to things, to sort of change my personality, to fit to the situation that I'm in. It's gotten a lot easier as I got older, but when I was a kid, I just couldn't figure it out. I didn't understand why people liked other kids and they didn't like me as much. Or, you know, they thought other kids were cute and they thought I was annoying. <laughs> and it's just because everything, you know, there was no give or take. There was no... I, I just wouldn't compromise on anything. Everything had to be kind of, I had my opinion and I had to say it and to hell with what anybody else thought. <laughs> there was your opinion and then there was a whole bunch of people who were wrong. That's exactly it. That's exactly <laughs> it. Well, even from when I was younger, I, I would listen to other people and, you know, be interested. But I just wanted to tell everybody what I thought, and why I thought that ad nauseum. <laughs> and now I podcast about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a natural kind of evolution from one to the other. Yes. It was that or it would have been, you know, were it 10 or 15 years earlier, it would have been letters to the editor in a newspaper. Yeah. Letters that start with why, oh, why. Yeah, give me a radio show. And I'll <laughs> oh, talk yeah, at totally. Things like that. And then my sister came along and kind of changed things for me a little bit when I was seven and I lived in Korea and suddenly all the attention was on her because I was, you know, I was seven years old. There was a lot of things that I could do for myself by seven that the baby could not do for herself, but I could not figure out why they didn't want to pay attention to me anymore. You're like, I'm, I'm good value. Look at how much other stuff I can do. No, no, literally, there's a video of me. We were living in Korea. My parents' families wanted to see the baby, you know. She was born in Korea. And so they would send back videos of her and she wasn't doing anything. <laughs> she was a baby. She was lying there. And I was like, what are you doing? So I would do like handstands and run across the front in front of the camera and stuff. I'm like, no, look at me. I can do stuff. The baby's just lying there. What are you doing? I'm sorry. Okay. I know th this was your childhood. I do not mean to make light of this, but that's kind of awesome. <laughs> hey, look at me. I'm being entertained. Check me out. Check me out. <laughs> There's another video of me when I was a little kid. This is so embarrassing. When I was I was younger, before Claire was born, I was about four or five, and I had this list of puzzles. And I was showing this kid all the puzzles that I had, and they got bored, obviously, with what I was telling them. And I grabbed their chin, and I turned it back towards me. And then I'm like, and I have this one. <laughs> so I didn't like people not listening to me. No, you will listen. You will listen. Yeah. <laughs> and people interrupting me and people explaining things at me that I already know are the big issues for me. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm still marvelous. I'm just picturing like like a steady, like unmoving shot. Yeah. Like a single take of like a baby in an empty room and just this kid whipping by at high speed. That's, that's what the video, that I mean, you're, you're describing the video of me just like in front, like trying to get the attention. It's not a steady shot though, because they keep trying to move away from me. <laughs> they can show the baby. It's something that's been sort of top of mind for me because my older sister had her first son a couple of weeks ago. Kimiko's pregnant at the moment. And my mom will send these videos. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. My mom will send these videos and they'll be like like a two-minute video. And like it'll come to my phone and I'll be like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll open that and have a look at it. And we'll watch. And the internet has trained me that if a video involving a cat or a baby is two minutes long, it means it's going to be sustained action for the first minute and 45 seconds. <laughs> and then something awesome is going to happen in those last 15 seconds. Yeah. You know, it's like that video of someone handwriting in beautiful calligraphy the word satisfaction. Yeah. And as they go to dot the last I, they smear it with their thumb. Mm. And it's like your heart's been torn in two. But instead, because it's my mother, it's just a video of the baby doing the same thing for two, two minutes and four seconds. Yep. <laughs> and I'm like, cool, cool. That was worth 50 megabytes of my data. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Ma. So, so yes, we need to set a standard with the upcoming <laughs> Robert Brown kid that this kid has to be interesting and the video has to have a point. <laughs> it has to have a story. It has to have an arc. You have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. No. And, and then a denouement. Yeah, exactly. You need the punchline in there. All the best babies have denouements. Yeah. <laughs>
Wait, actually, God, as I say that, a really, really depressing thought just hit me. All babies have denouements. Like, isn't that just adulthood? <laughs> no, that's depressing. Maybe old age. That's a less depressing way of saying it. Yeah, old age. Yeah, adulthood is more of the bulk of the story. Second act. Stepping out of the denouement of baby. So what sort of things were you into when you were traveling around as this attention-seeking, opinion-giving child? When I was in Japan as a really little one, my thing was Gene Kelly musicals. My parents would take them from the TV. There's actually a really fun story about that. My favorite, 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 favorite was Singing in the Rain. Still to this day, easily my favorite movie. It's a great movie. I had great taste when I was two years old. (laughs) Uh, You know, I would go and dance around with my little umbrella and I had it memorized. I had it memorized. I watched this movie you know, a million times as a child and then every year up until I went to university mm-hmm. and did film studies and we watched Singing in the Rain. And I'm sitting there in this lecture hall watching this movie with all the other people that I'm taking film studies with and this scene comes up and I'd never seen it before. Oh. Have you seen Singing in the Rain? Yes. Um, do you know the Moses Supposes scene? They're doing speech lessons and Lena does one where they teach her how to say things and she'll mispronounce them. I'm trying to remember the exact quote of that now, and I can't remember it for some reason. Oh, Pierre, you shouldn't have come, those things. And then they go to the speech lessons that Don's having, Gene Kelly's having, and he's perfect. Of course he's perfect. And so he just gets distracted and starts singing with Cosmo, and they sing and dance at the instructor, the teacher, and it's Moses supposes his toes are roses. The whole thing was sort of designed around Donald O'Connor's dancing style. So it's much kind of looser than what Gene Kelly would do. This is me getting really film nerdy. It's much more kind of in his style. It's one of the numbers designed to showcase Donald O'Connor, like the make him laugh number, which is just Which is my my favorite, my favorite thing in that film. (laughs) That is definitely up there. That and, I mean, obviously the Singing in the Rain number. But the make, Make Him Laugh one specifically because I saw it when I was younger and didn't think anything of it because it was silly stuff happening in a movie. Mm. And I watched it again as an adult who has a bad shoulder and, you know, potential neck problems and has to wear insoles and stuff. And I look at that and I just go, my God, the human body can do stuff. I know. I'm a big fan of dance stuff. It's part of the musical theater thing. And I just, sometimes I watch people, I'm just like, God, that's just astonishing what they can do. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was covered in bruises, you know, he's killed himself with that number and then they had to reshoot it. But he's brilliant. I mean, yeah, that was my favorite for a long time as well. But this Moses Supposes number shows up and I audibly just like choke gasp, like, <laughs> not like a little thing, like, People turned around and stared at me. This was like one of the most emotional moments of my life that I'm watching this movie that I was obsessed with that I knew every frame of. And here's the scene that I've never seen before because it came after an ad break and they hadn't unpaused it. Oh, no. So they just left it paused for the whole scene instead of unpausing like partway through. Oh, my God. And this whole scene I didn't even know existed, you know. Like, I, it's not like I thought to go on the internet and search for singing in the rain whether or not there were scenes I hadn't seen or anything like that. Oh, my God. And uh, I nearly cried in the lecture hall with <laughs> all these people that I didn't know at this new scene in this movie. I was like bewitched by it and also horrified that i'd never seen it before it's something that doesn't really happen as much anymore but no like it's such a weird feeling the thing is and this is a terrible comparison and so i apologize in advance but when i was in canada before i came to australia so 14 years ago i had seen the first austin powers movie because it came out when i was in like i think (laughs) my first it was in like my second to last year of high school it came out and everyone saw it. Loved those movies when I was in high school. Yep, everyone does. And then, and I'm like, okay. And it was one of those movies that it was on a lot and they played it on TV a whole bunch, especially the first one. And so I <laughs> knew that movie fairly well. And then years and years and years later, I was watching it on Australian TV and I realized that there is a ton of deleted material from what was then the North American release. Oh. Like there's a whole scene where is it, Christian Slater is a, is a guard. Oh, and he's he, yes. I have a fun story about that okay, actually. Yeah. that I'll come back to after yours. Where where he hypnotizes him with his eyebrows yeah. and gets him to orange sherbet. Yeah, orange sherbet. And it's like I remember watching that, and it's, it's that weird feeling, like where you're watching it and you know every beat that's coming, and then the movie takes a left turn, and then 
you're sitting there and you're kind of floating in this weird kind of feeling of, of unsafety is not a word but you feel like like you don't know what's happening it's almost this dreamlike quality and you follow it along and then the movie, movie purgatory there you go and it writes itself because it goes back to what you know mm. and it was that as well as the storylines where every time they killed a guard you'd cut to something the best part that's a my favorite joke. It's an incredibly dark in the joke, history. but it's great. Yeah. And I think my favorite jokes in the, that, there's a couple actually that in Hocus Pocus, when she says he has a little woman, <laughs> it makes me cry laughing. That's so dumb. He says, he's dressed up as Satan and he goes, come inside and meet the little woman. And Bette Midler goes, he has a little woman, holds up her fingers really small <laughs> to indicate that the woman is like a teeny tiny person. And I just, every time makes me laugh. But my, my all-time favorite joke, so nobody ever thinks of the families of the henchmen. And they go there and they're like, he, he died. He was, his head was eaten off by ill-natured mutated sea bass. <laughs> just like, just the funniest thing I think that I'd ever seen. It was completely excised from the North American theatrical That's version. terrible. Those are the best jokes. Clearly the North American audiences were not ready for that level of dark humor. <laughs> my story about Austin Powers actually, when I was in high school, my then best friend and I were doing a marathon of Christian Slater movies. We watched the radio one. Oh, oh, oh you mean <laughs> a little thing called Pump Up the Volume? Pump up the volume. My brain's not working, sorry. I've had a really long day. Samantha Mathis' best movie? Oh, yeah. Samantha Mathis had a fantastic career. Thank you very much. She was in that. And Fern Gully and... And Broken Arrow. Broken Arrow. Yeah. <laughs> that's the next one I was going to say. And that's Samantha Mathis' career. It was one of those things where it's like they almost portrayed her as this kind of dowdy park ranger in Broken Arrow. And I'm like, that's that's Samantha Mathis. She was, in, oh, she was the goth no. kid from Pump Up the Volume. That's not her whole career. I'm sorry. Oh. The Mario Brothers movie. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> Brilliant role, obviously, in a, <laughs> what is definitely a classic. That movie's not as bad as people think it is. Not the point. Still pretty bad, but yes. <laughs> we watched Pump Up the Volume. We watched Heathers, of course. Yeah. A whole bunch of Christian Slater movies. Angel Heart, which was terrible. Wait, a whole bunch of stuff. Wasn't Angel Heart the, it... the Mickey? No, Angel that's Rock the Mickey Rourke one. The other one, you know, the Fragile Heart Roses. Bed of Roses? Bed of Roses? Yeah, oh. Bed of Roses. That must be it. Oh, you mean my older sister Chantal's favorite movie. <laughs> uh, sorry, I mixed that up. He had a heart problem. Maybe that's why I did it. Something like that. Yeah. I think he was sick. Hang on. Bed of Roses. I'm looking this up. I think it's called Bed of Roses. Yeah, because this is the one where, where he gets like the special purple rose that has no thorns. Right. Anyway, Again, we watched all these Christian Slater movies. My sister was a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> I was not, as you can tell. Like, I remember Heather's and Pump Up the Volume. There's another one as well that was Pump Up the Volume-esque from the same period. God, Christian Slater was so great when he was a kid. Just, like, so watchable, you know? You could just watch him do anything, and he had this energy about him. And then we were like, we're going to watch a movie that doesn't have Christian Slater in it. We've done enough. <laughs> we're going to have to watch a movie that doesn't have Christian Slater in it. We'll watch a favorite. Let's watch Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> forgetting that he was in it we put the movie in then halfway through he shows up and you know here's your own sherbet and we were like oh my god and I, I can just imagine you know there's christian slater like feeling the change in the force that you've stopped watching movies about him and <laughs> yeah, he, then, exactly. he then bends time to insert himself into the first austin powers <laughs> film and thing is i must have seen that austin powers film before he bent time because my memory was protected from the ripples, which is why it shocked me when I saw him in the movie. Oh, my brain is unraveling. This is great. What's it called? That that effect, the Mandela effect. Yeah. You, you were affected by our Mandela effect. <laughs> yeah, so that was uh, another... When I was in high school, gosh, we used to do these, like, little mini marathons of all these different things. And my friend that I was talking about, she was a very rich ambassador's daughter from a Middle Eastern country, lots of oil. We used to go there. She had this wonderful huge place and I had this little tiny apartment at the Australian Embassy so we would go over to her place to watch movies and she had her own TV in her room so fancy you know I was so excited and we would just sit there and we'd watch movie after movie after movie but I remember that Christian Slater little marathon especially for the ending I have now jumped over to Christian Slater's Wikipedia page and I forgot <laughs> that he was in a movie a little movie called Mobsters I haven't seen that where he was Lucky Luciano it's one of those things where I think everyone was just like hey, let's put a bunch of Brat Packy type actors in a gangster movie. And you've got Patrick Dempsey and Christian Slater and Richard Grieco and, wow. and Lara Flynn Boyle and Chris Penn. <laughs> and it's like, and they're all being like 
you know, Frank Costello and Lucky Luciano and Bugsy Siegel. And yeah. I remember the one where they were all kids. Bugsy Malone. But yeah, apparently yeah. the reception of Mobsters was almost universally panned and it has a 6% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Gosh, I'm so surprised. That sounded like such a classic. You'd think, right? You know who else was in Fergali, by the way, was Christian Slater. <laughs> Little reunion. Christian Slater was also in Broken Arrow. So it's like, that's three times they've been together. Yeah. Samantha Mathis, wasn't she there when uh, River Phoenix died? Was she? All I knew it was in... I think she was. It was What's-His-Face's Club, the terrible guy. Johnny Depp. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. Club, the Viper Room, outside the Viper Room in 1994, Halloween. 1994, 1991. I'm bad with dates, man. I'm so bad at numbers. But it's around then sometime. Well, you clearly and, have uh, every other aspect of the death memorized, so you're way ahead of me. Martha Plimpton, I know, was there. Joaquin Phoenix called, but I think Samantha Mathis was there as well. He died in October of 1993. 993. See, I'm bad at the numbers, but I knew it was Halloween. I was a bit obsessed with River Phoenix as well when I was a kid. <laughs> See, I just remember him having the incredibly impractical hair in the third Indiana Jones film. Yes, but he was so good in that. Oh, yeah, he was good in that. He was good in The River's Edge. Untamed Heart. Untamed Heart is the one that I was thinking of. Uh, there you go. He was good in what? <laughs> the River's Edge. He was good in everything. Yeah, although The River's Edge was one of those movies where it's like, I started to watch it because everyone was in it. And that's a really dark and depressing movie. And I never wanted to see it again. No, River Phoenix, man, Stand By Me. Yeah, Stand By still, Me. Still, like, when he walks off at the end of it, makes me cry. When he fades out, because, you know, then he dies in real life and it's just heartbreaking. Yep. My Own Private Idaho, mm. loved that movie a lot. Yeah, it's a big River Phoenix fan. There is something particularly affecting where an actor is given a particularly affecting death scene and then dies themselves mm. tragically. Like Glenn Quinn from Angel gets a hell of a send off as Doyle. Oh God! Really, oh God! Yeah, and with finishing. Hero. Oh, finishes with the. Is that it? Am I done? Am I done? And then it I sort know. of trails off, and then you go, Oh my God, he's dead now. Yeah. <laughs> my heart. I know, and this is not a comparable situation, but it always breaks my heart to see when Lorne leaves as well now. Oh, yes. Andy Hallett was such a gem. He was. He was so great. And just to bring in the trifecta of terribly affecting things, we spoke briefly about Avatar's Last Airbender in the pre-show. How about Tales of Ba Sing Se, where you get uh, Uncle <laughs> Iroh singing to the shrine of his dead son, and then immediately yeah. find out that the beloved voice actor and actual actor Mako died as well yeah and it's like ah you, you, yeah death of love death of joy that's really sad too i think just the but that fade out because it's that he's a kid and then in the story he died as an adult so he fades out but in real life he died before he could you know grow up just like us uh, heartbreaking plus that's such a good movie anyway yeah totally just such a good movie yeah but angel hero is one of my favorite episodes of angel season one and season five Everything else can, uh, <laughs> I just don't acknowledge for the most part, especially season four didn't happen. <laughs> God damn it, Connor. I don't blame Connor necessarily. It's what they did with that storyline is so bad. People really vilify annoying kids on TV and in movies, and I just don't go for that very much. Same thing happens with Dawn on Buffy. I get really irritated with people because I'm like, this is the only person on the show who's ever acted like a teenager. You understand that, right? Yeah, and I mean, come on. She basically Harriet the Spy. So the thing is, she also has a really good growing up arc on the show. She's the only one who has, like, a real teenager growing up arc on the show, you know? Like, accepting that she's not the center of the universe. <laughs> that sort of thing. And finding her own place and finding her own worth and things. And, and becoming less annoying. That sort of thing just kind of annoys me a little bit. But Connor, I think, they're just... It's such a horrifying, terrible storyline that they gave him. Mm. Where, you know, the whole like terrible Oedipal thing with Cordelia and all that nonsense. Even before that, the, the whole idea of, okay, we're going to have baby episodes for like 10 episodes <sighs> and then we're going to have him get kidnapped by, oh God, I just remembered that Holtz was a thing. And we're going to have him get kidnapped. Right? Like it's so terrible, but also it the whole season blurs into itself so much. Yep. You can't tell when one episode ends and the next one begins. It, it's just one long slog of misery and horrible, horrible writing. <laughs> it, it's just the worst thing that's ever been in any Whedon show. <laughs> Yeah, Ever. and they take him away, and they bring him back, and it's like, hi, I was raised in Quartoth, so I can fight like crazy and have a blade on my arm. Such a bad storyline. Ride a bus like Teen Wolf. 
and then you get to the crazy Oedipal stuff. Yeah, exactly. No, the whole thing is just dreadful. And they cast Vincent Carthizer, who couldn't look more, like, snotty. Oh, yeah. I like the guy, but, like, the Mad Men casting, you know, that was good casting for Vincent Carthizer. Oh, picking him to be the weaselly little guy in the office was great because I had leftover right. hate for him when that series ended. And so when I saw I saw Pete turn up in Mad Men, I'm like, that motherfucker right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, he hasn't said a word yet, but I don't like him already. You know, casting him as somebody who's supposed to be the, you know, sympathetic, sweet kid who grew up in horrible situation doesn't work. Mm-mm. Just not, it didn't work. And that's not anything against the actor. I, I'm not trying to disparage him, but just not, it was bad casting, bad writing, bad everything. But then he comes back in season five. It was such a good episode, you know, mm-hmm. such a good, he had such good moments in season five, but season five was so good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when they had to completely kind of reset the show and really explore a themes like you know the more gray area things Mm -hmm. that the show had always kind of been pushing more than Buffy say yeah there's the slow slide into that moral gray yeah of like oh you're you're doing bad but for good reasons but also in episodes that felt like each individual episode felt like its own story again and they brought back some good characters that interplay between Angel and Spike is always so good Mm -hmm. it just works so much better and let's not forget it's so much better it gave us one of the greatest hours of television it gave us Smile Time and Puppet Angel. The, no, but the one-two punch of Smile Time and A Hole in the World. Yeah, that's true. Smile Time, which is Puppet... I have a Puppet Angel, by the way. <laughs> of course you do. But the, the one-two punch of like Smile Time, the, one of the funniest, weirdest, craziest episodes, followed by A Hole in the World, the soul-sucking misery of that. Oh, just like, it's such a Joss thing, too. Mm-hmm. It's the, the toss-up and then just driving you down into the ground. Right, and he does exactly the same thing on Buffy with Once More With Feeling and then Tabula Rasa too, Yeah, yeah. which are both great episodes, where Once More With Feeling is this off-the-wall kind of crazy singing. It's so good. Everybody is so on point. And then, like, it smashes you at the end with that, you know, she was actually in heaven thing. And then you've got Tabula Rasa with them trying to figure it out. And again, it's really funny, followed by, like, that soul-sucking misery. <laughs> yep. And as always, like, I am in the tank for any TV show where everyone loses their memory and hijinks ensue. <laughs> yeah, they do that on Angel, too, with Spin the Bottle. Yeah, and I mean, it happens in Xena. I think it actually happens twice in Buffy, if you count for something blue, where Willow is actually compelling people to do oh, stuff. Yeah. yeah, That's not really a memory loss no, one, but, though. They but it's just, something it's taking over a... and hijinks ensuing, and I'm like, I'm yeah. down for that. That's a great episode. Yeah. Something blue is a really great, there's so yeah. many really funny moments in that one. Ooh. There's also a Young Justice episode where that happens, and it's great. Uh, where everyone's regressed to, like, I think it's, like, 10 years before. And, like, wow, yeah, great, because Superboy in that show is a clone. So he has no memory, so he's a mindless sort of berserker. Whereas oh. Robin is still Robin, because Robin has been trained since he was, like, six. Yeah. So, yeah, it's fun stuff like that. Is that the one? No, it's not. It's the Greg Wiseman one, the same guy who did Gargoyles. Okay, I was thinking of that one that has um, Starfire and Raven in it. Oh, Teen Titans, also great. Teen Titans, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, gotta love a show that will have a Japanese version of its own theme song to let you know this is a silly episode and you can relax. Sounds good. Yeah. I've seen a few episodes of that one. Mm. But yeah, I can recite every Buffy. I think I can, I did a, there's a quiz online where you can name all the Buffy episodes and I got like 80%. Nice. It's a bit embarrassing, really. I, I went to a local Buffy trivia at Good God Small Club. Oh, I think I read about that. Yeah, and I was is, like, oh my God, I want to go. I did. And I was like, I was ready. And here's the problem. It's a well-known enough show that in order to make a trivia thing for it, it's like it has to get some really bullshitty answers. Like, what day was the Feast of St. Vigius? And, you know, mm. you need to give Buffy's birth date, not just date and month, but also year. And it's like, mm. there's like really. I'm trying to think if I could do that. I know, it's like, it's one of those things where I'm like, I remember roughly when in each season it comes. I could probably, like, you know, pull a date out of it. I know her address. Go on then. It's 1630 Ravello Drive. That's Buffy's address. It always made me double take because a Ravello is like a Magnum ice cream in Canada. Yeah. The vanilla ice cream with the chocolate shell. That's a Ravello in Canada. Okay. I haven't heard of that before. Okay. Regional stuff. It happens. There are things that I can do, but I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm so bad at numbers and years and things. Whenever they do that for trivia, I'm lost. I really love doing trivia, but, and I'm generally pretty good at it. I have a good memory for that stuff. But numbers and years and, and that sort of thing, I just, like, I'll be one year off or something like that and it'll drive me crazy. 
Yeah, and see, I think that's always the line you have to ride with a trivia night, especially a themed trivia night. Mm. It always has to seem plausible that you would know the answer, yeah. even if it's a difficult and specific question. It's like, yeah. you don't want anyone to hear that question and go, oh, that's bullshit. No one would know that. I think probably Buffy's birth date is straddling the line a little bit. Like, people might know that. Mm -hmm. But what date is the Feast of St. Fidges is ridiculous. You know, this thing that happens in the background of a season one episode. Yeah. It's like, no, no, guys, please don't. No, that's that's a bit insane. Yeah, also listeners who are enjoying our trip down the Whedonverse lane, uh, Travis McElroy and his wife Teresa have started a podcast called The Kind Rewind, where they go and they rewatch stuff. And they dedicated four very fun episodes to a 2017 rewatch of Buffy season one. Ah. Uh... God, I, that is something that I would do. That was my adolescence, Buffy. It started airing just before I left for Japan when I was here, just as I was really getting into TV. I had a really rough couple of years beginning of high school. What's Australian high school, year seven and eight? Mm -hmm. I had to move from a public school to an all-girls private school, and I could not figure out how to fit in at all, and it was just bullying and awful. God, it was awful. And then we moved to Japan. <laughs> just as I had made friends, which was traumatic for me as a 14-year-old. And I had braces, like really bad braces. I, I just thought I looked terrible. I hated everything. I hated my family and my school and everything. And I had Buffy. I started watching it here and then I'd go to Japan and it's not on TV. Uh -oh. And I had the internet and I would go on the internet and I would find transcript of Buffy not like because you know you couldn't download videos then mm -hmm. you couldn't download tv shows like you can now I would go and find people would write up what had happened and I would go and read them and my grandmother would tape episodes for me and send them to me oh. and that's how I consumed Buffy and then like would talk to people on the internet about it and that was what I had like to sort of get me through that it just felt like Joss Whedon was writing for me <laughs> and to me and about me I learned feminism from Buffy <laughs> I learned how to stand up for myself and become my own person and all that sort of stuff from Buffy. It was just so, it meant so much to me. And it was on from when I was about 13 to when I was about 20, 19. So it was basically my all my teen years were Buffy. So if we were to come up with one more thing that you think was extremely formative for you in your particular childhood, what would it be? The way that I got into movies, basically, it was the Gene Kelly musicals, but it was also my, my grandmother had this collection of movies at her house. So whenever I'd come back to visit, we'd watch these videos and it was old 80s, 70s classic you know, action movies and things that she thought we would like and that we could watch as the kids. And so it was like Indiana Jones, Back to the Future and Star Wars. Of course, then they weren't old. They were new. But now they're all classics. There was all those kinds of action things. And Star Wars, I think, the first original Star Wars is so good. And that kind of sparked my love of, like, sci-fi and that sort of stuff. I like telling people that the first time I saw Star Wars was in the womb. <laughs> because I was born in 1983, definitely aging myself. I thought you were going to say for a second, I was born in a film that was showing the movie Star Wars. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Third movie came out in 1983. And so the first time my mum saw it, she was pregnant with me. Aww. So, like, Star Wars was something that was around from, like, you know, when I was born. I really loved it. I watched it a million times, and it was kind of, that's, like, my idea of, like, a perfectly formed movie is the original Star Wars, which collects all these older sort of mythologies and stories and puts it into this new universe, all the kind of character tropes and character arcs that are the classic ones, you know, that come from like fairy tales and Merlin and Arthur and that sort of stuff and sticks it in space and cowboys and Kurosawa, you know, <laughs> all of these things and sticks it in space. So that was really, really formative for me. And then of course the prequels came out <laughs> and were terrible and it was shattering and horrible. And so I went off it for such a long time because you just couldn't how could you be associated with star wars when the latest star wars stuff was that <laughs> and it was so terrible and then the force awakens came out and now i'm just basically all about star wars all the time it's so brilliant and such a good return to form for the franchise and makes me happy i completely agree and the score <laughs> the score god and it's so beautifully shot too empire strikes back is so gorgeous all the things that i like in movies there Sorry, I interrupted That's you. That's fine. Uh, the analog film nerd in me was overjoyed to see that The Force Awakens, A, was shot on film. Yes, always good. And B, single-handedly brought Kodak back from the brink of bankruptcy. Did it? I didn't know that. It did. It was one of those things where, because I didn't know when I went into the film. And I remember looking at it, and I remember just thinking, like, everything just looks right. Like, 
A, I know that there's a ton of practical effects and mm. they specifically wanted physical objects to be interacted with. And that's great. I love that stuff. Me too. But I'm like, there was something like a little bit golden. There was something a little bit kind of retro about how it was shot. It didn't really twig in my head as to what it was. And then I saw that article that it was shot entirely on film. And I was just like, yes. See, I knew. Somehow I knew that. It's it, better. It felt right, you know? Have you seen a movie called Fury? No. What's... It's a war movie. Got Shia LaBeouf and it came out recently. Oh, that's the tank one, right? The tank one, yeah. And uh, it was shot entirely on film. Ooh. And just looks so good. But they tanks fire at each other. And the way that the light comes through the clouds it looks like lasers from star wars what it's the strangest thing it just every time they have a tank battle it looks like star wars oh wow and they have like red and blue as well oh, no so it's like transformers <laughs> oh my friend dan has actually written his thesis on war movies and as such is kind of my go-to authority on such yeah. things and i am definitely going to pull his coat because he's a big star wars fan as well i'm going to pull his coat and say hey dan have you seen that fury movie Maybe we should watch it together. It's not the best movie ever, but it's pretty good. And Shia LaBeouf is really good in it. Uh I know he was a little shit on the set, but man, he's good in it. (laughs) It really paid off in his acting. But yeah, when they're shot on film, they're so much better. And I know J.J. Abrams has a lot of detractors. I am not one of them. I really like that guy. I actually, the new Star Trek movie Mm -hmm. got me into Star Trek. I watched Star Trek as a kid too, Next Generation. But it just, like, I was a kind of a explosions and shooting people kind of go and star trek was slow and ponderous i appreciated it but i just couldn't love it the way i loved star wars and then jj abrams made star trek like star wars and suddenly i was really into it i love that 2009 star trek movie it's one of my favorite movies and i know people hate it but it just it's so well made jj abrams is like this master of pacing especially and he can make a movie that just never slows down you never feel like oh when's it going to end you know you just keep waiting and waiting for the next scene and then it gets to the end and it's finished and you're like, oh my God, I have to see it again. And his movies look so good. And that's what he brought to Star Wars. You know, the pacing for Force Awakens is amazing. Mm-hmm. He did that kind of, that. it just, you know, it pulls you along with it. It takes you for this ride and it doesn't let you up. For all that it's a long film, you don't feel the weight of that. No. At no point are you squirming in your seat. Right, exactly. There's no point at which I ever... I saw it six times at the cinema. Never got bored once, ever. Last time I took myself to a premium (laughs) screening, just for me, middle of the day. Treat yourself. And had the best time. Treat yourself, exactly. I saw Star Trek seven times. The 2009 one. So he brought all of that stuff. But I also think there's a kind of the way that the characters in Force Awakens are like reminiscent of the other characters, but different. And the story is reminiscent of the older story, but different. That is kind of what the spirit of Star Wars was, which is like taking all of the older stories, making them slightly different. Right? Right. Totally. So like what you get with Force Awakens is he takes the mythology of Star Wars that's now been created. Instead of, you know, fairy tales and all that stuff, we've got now Star Wars, which has been around since 1977, 40 years this year. Wow. And this is so much an ingrained part of us now, right? Mm. And he kind of tweaks that and gives it this modern makeover with girls and people who aren't white crazy (laughs) and brings in like sympathetic stormtroopers and that sort of thing and updates it and puts a new shine on it and gives it to the new generation i think that's very much in the spirit of what the original star wars did it took all these old stories and updated it made it shiny and gave it to a new generation which is something that i really loved about the force awakens and i can't wait until last jedi comes out this year so excited and i think that's actually a nice place where we can end it so katie if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet where would they go so you can go to silverscreenqueens.com is the website for the podcast or you can find us on itunes silverscreenqueens we're on tumblr i don't remember if it's tumblr.silverscreenqueens.com or the other way around i'm sorry we're on twitter at screen underscore queens if you want to find me i'm at the underscore katie underscore m it's k-a-t-i-e on twitter my blog is silverscreenqueen with no s.wordpress.com and that's where i put my movie reviews thank you so much for coming on katie this has been great Oh, thank you for having me. I hope I didn't rant too much. I know that was not exactly a theme there. (laughs) You just kind of rambled for a while. I'm singing in the rain. You're singing in the rain.
what a glorious feeling I'm happy again I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above Thank you very much to Katie Malloy for her time. When I asked Katie for recommendations for her signature cocktail, she highlighted that she liked clear spirits, not dark spirits, tropical flavors, and juice mixers rather than soft drink. A pina colada influence was suggested, but not compulsory. As a result, I've dipped into my Trader Vic's library and come up with a tiki cocktail. In a shaker full of ice, combine two ounces of white rum, two ounces of orange juice, one ounce of lemon juice, half an ounce of triple sec, quarter ounce of simple syrup, and half an ounce of coconut syrup. Shake vigorously for 30 seconds, and then pour, unstrained, into a double old-fashioned glass. Garnish with a wedge of lime and a sprig of mint. And after our conversation today, I could only call it the Orange Slater, which also passes as a sobriety test because it's very difficult to say after a few drinks. This drink is tropical, punchy, and just a little bit hypnotic. Enjoy. The View is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. Not gonna lie, Snapchat's still full of baby photos. If you have a few dollars in your pocket and would like to directly support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. You can get early access to episodes when I finish them in time, cursive tweets, physical mail, and I would really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head on over to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave us a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also write a review and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a playlist with every song I've ever used on the show, going all the way back to episode one, including this song. It's the RJD2 remix of The Gentle Rain by Astrid Gilberto. Next week, I'll be talking to Nathan Hubbard, aka Hub from the Titan of the Defense podcast, and we're going to be rocketing back to the 1940s to talk about the Bob and Ray radio show. Join me, won't you? I have a rant about recipes and how the timing goes wrong. Sometimes we do this thing called Marley Spoon. It's like kind of like HelloFresh or Blue Apron and stuff like that, where they deliver you stuff for meals and then you cook it yeah. yourself. Most of the time, they're, they're I only know what Blue Apron is because I McElroy listen to Brothers. How Did This Get Made all the time. <laughs> oh, okay. Because here's the thing: we did HelloFresh for a while, but the problem with HelloFresh is that a lot of the recipes are pretty much the same. It's like mm-hmm. here, bake some chicken or some pork or something, and like yep. here is a potato and here is a vegetable. And it's like after a couple of times, you're like, eh, not so much. And you get some bland ones. But Marley's has actually been pretty good in that we have not gotten a dud recipe yet. Even when we accidentally ordered yeah. the vegetarian recipe, it was like <laughs> this like doll thing with like Moroccan kind of tagine. And it was like pumpkin and apricots and stuff. It was really nice. Um, but this one, this was bangers and mash, which is a nice food to have. I'm looking at it. It's got like six steps. And they're like, okay, start the mash. Cool, put the potatoes on. While that's happening, cook the sausages and prepare like some onions and stuff. And so there's like, I'm following all these four steps and I already read the recipe through all the way. And then I get to number four, which is finish the mash. It's like add peas, drain the potatoes, add milk and butter, 
and salt and some parsley and some mint and cover it with a lid. I'm like, cool, so it's nearly done. Just keeping the potatoes warm, the sausages are in the oven, it's all good. Number five, from there, is like, okay, melt butter in the pan, cook the onion for three minutes, stir in sugar, cook the onion for five minutes more, add flour, cook for one more minute, then add the stock and your mustard and bring to a boil and then reduce it to a simmer and cook it for an additional five minutes. And what is all of this for? This, this is for the gravy that goes with the sausages. Oh. And so it's like the last two steps take a combined. Let me see. Three, five, four, that's nine plus however many bring boil. Let's say three, so 12. That's 17 minutes on the last two yeah. steps. That's really irritating. This is a liar recipe. And I'm like... But also, why would you spend 20 minutes just making gravy? Well, admittedly, it would have pretty good gravy. Yeah, but uh, see, this is where this is, this is where cooking loses me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to spend 20 minutes making gravy when I can go down to the shops and buy gravy. Or, you know, get one of those packet gravies. Although, because I've been living with my girlfriend at one point, she's like, we can have gravy. And falls out this like packet gravy mix. I'm like, you get that out of my sight. I do not want <laughs> oh, no. that. Not in my kitchen. Okay, so you're clearly pickier than I am then. <laughs> yeah, but but luckily she straightened my hair earlier today and I look like some sort of Bishonen battle angel. So, you know... I saw that on Twitter. All things are positive. <laughs> okay. 